At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 259th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where three days a week we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWANTTOSAVESEEDS.COM and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how to save your own. On today's podcast, we have someone who is getting down deep into the food revolution. We're talking to David Montgomery about bringing our soil back to life. David is a MacArthur Fellow and Professor of Geomorphology at the University of Washington. He is an internationally recognized geologist who studies landscape evolution and the effects of geological processes on ecological systems and human societies. An author of award-winning popular science books, he has been featured in documentary films, network and cable news, and on a wide variety of TV programs, including NOVA, PBS NewsHour, Fox and Friends, and All Things Considered. David has written two books on soil, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life, and The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health, which he co-wrote with his wife, Anne Buckley. Welcome to the show today, David. Hey, well, thanks, Greg. It's a pleasure being here. Hey, always like talking about soil here, so. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Well, sure. You know, when when I started uh, an undergraduate degree in geology, I didn't imagine that, you know, decades later I would be writing books about soil and soil fertility and how to restore it. Because as a geologist, you think about rocks, um, right? But over over time, I really came to appreciate the the central role that soil has played in the history of human civilizations. I have worked all over the world looking at soil erosion problems, but I've also thought about the problem of soil production. How do you actually? How does mm. nature make soil? Right. And I eventually, after sort of writing a, a book about the history of soil erosion on human societies, and then started looking at the process of rebuilding and regenerating fertility on soils. And you know, eventually down the road, I came to write a book on that, and then here I am. Wow, cool. So in your bio, I read a word that I actually, if I thought about it, I don't know that I heard it before today, and that's geomorphology. Can you <laughs> tell us what that is? Yeah, sure. I mean, you can break it down. It's like geomorph. Mm -hmm. And ology. So the geo is earth, morph is form, and ology is science. So it's the science that studies the surface forms of the earth, otherwise known oh. as topography. 
Ah. So, you know, it's, it's the kind of geology that shapes how the land landscapes are sculpted. Uh, mm-hmm. So you kind of look at, you know, the, the actual geology, the bones of the landscape underneath, but you also have to look at, you know, what erodes soil, what forms soil. Is there soil or is it bare and rocky? What, how, what does the vegetation do? And increasingly, what is it that people do to the landscape mm-hmm. that is starting to affect how it's not only formed, but how it can support human societies? Right. So what are people doing? Well, you know, the big thing historically has been we've we've accelerated the pace of erosion. Going all the way back to the, the invention of the plow, we've increased the pace at which soils are being removed from the surface of the earth without necessarily increasing the pace at which they're being replaced Replace. or restored. Yeah. And w- with anything like that, if you're using it up faster than you're replacing it, you're, by definition, running out of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this has happened to society after society. Uh, a story that I told in my, my second popular book, which is called Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations, um, it came out 10 years ago now, uh, uh-huh. where I looked backwards at the history of farming and soil erosion uh, and its effect on landscapes and came to the conclusion that the way that people have treated the land is one of the key factors that sets the longevity of human societies. Or shortens it. Well, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's how it's it's mostly played out, is that societies that have uh, degraded their fertility of their soil or actually destroyed their soil, right. um, which is what you see if you look at, say, Syria or Libya today, mm-hmm. those are places where we have Roman tax records of really fertile fields that produced high yields of crops, wheat and others, and you look there, there today and it's bare rock at the surface. The soil's gone. Mm. And the impoverishment that that is, has brought to those regions sort of lingers today, you know, a couple thousand years after the story played out. And in that case, we're talking a couple of thousand years. As you're sharing that, I'm looking at our soil situation around farming in our country now, and it's being accelerated at a much more rapid rate than a couple thousand years, is it not? Oh, yeah. No, we've, uh, if you look at sort of rates of soil loss in the U.S. Uh, since the onset of colonial agriculture a couple centuries ago, mm-hmm. we've lost roughly half, the, you know, a third to a half of the topsoil in the U.S. and fully half of the organic matter in the soil that remains in the U.S. But there's some regions, like parts of the Piedmont in the North Carolina that I've visited, for example, where there's none of the original topsoil left. The farmers are farming the, the subsoil, uh, which is not where most of the fertility lies in the natural soil. Right. So how does somebody farm the subsoil, and how do they fix it? Or can they? Well, you know, well, what, what actually, if you look at sort of the development and history of sort of innovation and change in agriculture, one uh-huh. of the big reasons that fertilizers became so popular in the late 19th and then throughout the 20th century was that we had degraded the natural fertility of the land to the degree to a degree to which that if you added chemical fertilizers they could really boost uh yields if you have a really rich dense uh fertile soil and you add a bunch of nitrogen or phosphorus to it you're probably not going to get much of a yield bump if you already have fertile soil right they work really well if you have degraded oh. soil to, to encourage plant growth now there's other issues in terms of all the other nutrients that a plant needs other than, say, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. But, um, uh, and those can affect plant health. But just to grow a big plant or to get a big yield without thinking about you know, how, how many nutrients are in it, right. <laughs> um, fertilizers can be very, very, very effective at that on a degraded soil. So, 
you know, one of the things that has happened uh, in the last century or so in the, the developed world is that we've come to rely on a suite of farming practices that further degrade the native fertility of the soil, which eventually means that we become very dependent on those practices, fertilizers and, and pesticides in right. particular, to maintain that fertility. Mm-hmm. And that can be a problem if you then run into the, the the potential for things like, say, the price of fertilizer going through the roof as energy supplies dwindle over the next century. Right. Um, or the, all the all the associated environmental effects with over-fertilization or overuse of pesticides. And so the other part of your question is how do you regenerate and rebuild fertility? And yeah. that's exactly what Growing a Revolution, the new book, is all about. Cool. So let's dive into that a little bit. <laughs> well, the you know, I, the approach I took in writing that book uh-huh. is one of, going around to visit farmers around the world who had already restored fertility to their land. So mm. you know, as a geologist, I can think in the abstract about how you build soils, how you make soils, but the pace at which nature does it is really quite slow. You know, right. it takes centuries for nature to make an inch of fertile topsoil. And I wanted to go visit farmers who had actually reversed the degradation on farms that, that, that they owned and done it much faster than that. They've done it in decades rather than centuries. And basically ask them, what did you do? How did you do it? Um, right. And go to farmers in different settings, different contexts, you know, North America, Africa, Central America, you know, farmers that had you know, subsistence farms with virtually no capital involved. So mm-hmm. it was mostly manual labor and, and hand tools. And also on really large, you know, 20,000 acre farms in the Dakotas where they're it's very technologically sophisticated. Right. Um, and look for what are the general principles that underlie success in all those different contexts and settings. And it turns out that I think that there's a fairly simple set of um, principles, which if adhered to, flip one's orientation in how one farms and puts practices into place that can rapidly rebuild soil fertility. And uh-huh. that those principles a- apply just as well in our yard in North Seattle as they do on some mm. of these farms. They're, they're good generalizable principles. Wow. So what is the number one principle? Well, you know, the number one one is ditch the plow. Stop disturbing the uh, soil. Yes. Don't disturb soil life. No soil till. life is on your side. Yeah. <laughs> My business partner, Kari, talks about when you go in with a plow, it would be like going into a city and plowing up, you know, bringing in this huge big plow and plowing up the city. And it's essentially doing the same thing from a... Uh, you know, from a uh, metaphorical perspective. Is that your experience? Oh, it is. It is. But being a, a fan of old Japanese horror movies when I was a kid, <laughs> I, I tend to view it more as, as Godzilla rampaging through the city. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, right, exactly. Disturbing everything, making it really hard to, to continue the um, day-to-day life. It's exactly that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that wasn't fully appreciated uh, at sort of the dawn of the modern agricultural era back in the 1930s and 40s when you know, fertilizers and pesticides uh, really became, um, it started to become the standard approach to farming, was the degree to which this life in the soil is an integral part of the, the natural system right. that gives rise to fertility. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people who are on to this, but the mechanics of how it worked, the actual details of the science of how that worked were not very well known, so their ideas didn't get as widely spread as, as in hindsight, they probably should have. Wow. 
So stop tilling the soil, number one. Number two? That's, that's number one. Number two would be cover up. Um, basically keep the ground covered uh, and with cover crops and particularly mm-hmm. integrating legumes into what uh, one's growing. Right. Because if you think about the problem of soil erosion, of actually losing the soil, and most of the fertility is in the topsoil, those surface layers. Right, so exactly. if you're eroding the soil, you're eroding the fertility. Keeping the ground covered is, that's how nature solved the problem. How many times have you gone out into a native grassland or a native forest somewhere mm-hmm. and seen like a whole bunch of bare ground? You know, nature clothes herself in plants Yeah. Um, in, in great part because that shuts down soil erosion mm-hmm. and that allows building up of the organic matter in the soil that really enhances and builds fertility. So yeah. cover, covering up and ad- adopting cover crops would be number two. Number two. And is there a number three? There is a number three, and it's adopting all three that really seem to work very well as a system, at least according to... my experience in going around and interviewing farmers and trying to see, well, what really worked. And and that third one is is grow a diversity of crops. Don't just grow the same thing over and over and over again. Um, And, you know, at least three or four different crops in the rotation so that the same piece of ground isn't always seeing the same crop. Because what that does is that sets the breakfast table for pests. Yeah. And, And so you want to break it up so that if, you know, if you have a corn one year in a, in a field, that the next year when the corn parasites that landed last year on that hatch out, you don't want them to have a whole bunch of corn to eat. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you want you want them to have barley or something else, yeah. <laughs> which they don't eat. <laughs> so much of this, so I, I teach and learn permaculture, and what permaculture does is observes nature and then kind of mimics nature, and that's really what you're talking about is, because I've, I've heard you reference it multiple times, you're looking at nature and natural systems and how they work. Well, yes, and it's, it's you know, if you look in terms of a strategy for getting the most result out of your effort, mm-hmm. working with a system, working with nature, is, is uh, has a lot less friction involved in it than trying to work against it. Yeah. And <laughs> so, you know, a lot of the basic ideas behind permaculture are, I think, in totally in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, I think, the, the, what these three practices do all together um, and there's lots of different specific practices you could do to adopt those three principles of ditching the plow, covering up, and growing diversity. Right. Um, but if you think of what defines our, the, mo- the modern philosophy of conventional agriculture today, um, it's you know, basing it on intensive tillage with, mm, with yeah. intensive chemical fertilizer use mm-hmm. and growing monocultures. Yeah. That is the exact opposite, opposite. of all three points. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, you know, I titled the book Growing a Revolution in, in part um, is that I think that adopting these three principles um, as the basis for thinking about agricultural practices, if we could do that, it would truly usher in another agricultural revolution by cultivating the beneficial life in the soil mm-hmm. and putting, you know, those trillions of organisms per fistful of dirt into um, yeah, into the realm where they are working for the same goals that we yeah. are, that they're they're working, they're helping to support what we want out of the soil, which would be agricultural production for a farm. Right. Wow. So this kind of leads into this whole notion of regenerative agriculture and regenerative. But before we go there, I'd like you to define regenerative for us. Boy, you know that that's one of those terms that the agronomists are probably going to argue about in terms of uh-huh. what it really means and, and so forth, but. I've got a fairly simple view of that, and that's one of the privileges, I think, of being an outsider as a geologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I would view as regenerative agriculture is, is a, a suite of agricultural practices 
that builds soil fertility as a consequence mm. of agricultural production. Oh, I like in that. Other words, as a in other words, the more you farm, the better the your better soil it gets. gets. Yeah. That is regenerative agriculture. And the same idea would apply in a garden, you know, uh-huh, regenerative right. gardening. Same deal. Yeah. Well, and I, and I love that you pre-qualified all this by you know, saying that you can do this in your backyard or on hundreds of acres. Yeah, that's you know the scalability of of these practice of these principles. Yeah, is something that I think is really central to thinking that they could be widely adopted and and literally transform agriculture. Mm-hmm. So how do we scale it up? Well, I think that the the key is really thinking about those those three things: the ditch and the plow, you know, growing cover crops and, mm-hmm. and the diversifying rotations. There's lots of different ways to actually implement each of those. So, you know, if you're on a big farm in, uh, in the Dakotas, you could buy a big John Deere no-till planter and use that in place of a plow. And you could use, you could buy an attachment to plant, you know, cover crop seeds and the same kind of a thing. And it could right. be a very technologically sophisticated and capital-intensive operation. Whereas if you're on a small farm, it says small subsistence farm in Ghana, you could do the same thing with a machete, which there they call a cutlass, but right. I'm from California originally, so I call it a machete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's basically hand tools where you, you, know, you hand plant the seeds. Instead of plowing, you basically plant through last year's crop stubble um, and leave it in place. So the, the practices would be totally different depending mm-hmm. on not just the scale, but the, right. the technology that's available, the degree of capitalization that's feasible, all those kind of things that affect a farm. Um, but but those general principles would be would be honored and adhered to in both those different settings, and that's where I found that you know again one the big contrast with with conventional agriculture is uh-huh. that what we what we tended to do and that I talked about in that dirt book from ten years ago is when Western agriculture spread around the world, we tended to take practices that worked okay in Europe and try and apply them everywhere, you know, including the plow, right. <laughs> um, and that didn't work so well because we were trying to take you know a diverse landscapes with in different climates with totally different crops and apply a single set of practices to everywhere mm-hmm. what we could do with these three principles is instead thinking about how can we adhere to those those principles but tailor the specific practices that we would use to implement them to the setting of an individual farm, right. and even in different places on the same farm, but yeah. you know, engage the great untapped ingenuity of farmers about how to actually do those things on their land mm-hmm. the way they see best fit, rather than trying to you know sell them the technique that worked in some other region for some yeah. other people in some other decade. Yeah. Well, and again, in permaculture, we we talk about observing your space, and all spaces are different. So then we have to integrate an event technologies, if you want to call them that, that work in your space. Yeah, and that's totally parallel to what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So you're a geologist. How'd you get to farming? (laughs) Well, you know, that that dirt book that I wrote was really sort of my gateway into the farming world Mm. because I started to write a book about, you know, the sort of the um, archaeological view of of geology and sort of how 
how soil erosion had affected ancient societies. And I was reading the archaeological literature and, and the, you know, the soil erosion literature. And the more I got into it, the more I realized I was writing a history of farming uh-huh. because that's where the connection was. Yeah. Um, and so it was from this backward look through how farming practices had affected different civilizations around the world mm-hmm. that I, I really started to connect with thinking about farming. And then when that book came out, I got started to get invitations to speak at like no-till farming conferences and, and other progressive farming conferences. And I would go and I'd give my talk about the history of soil erosion. And then I'd listen to the, you know, the other talks. And I, I started running into farmers who had had really good success at restoring fertility to their land, and they were really excited to tell their peers about it. And wow. I, I started listening to it and going, oh, these people are on to something. And at the same time that I was starting to be exposed to that, we bought a house in North Seattle that came with a yard that had a, a, um, an old lawn. I like to call it an old-growth Seattle lawn because uh-huh. it, you know, it was about a 100-year-old lawn that was six inches wow. thick. There wasn't right. a single worm in it. When we peeled that lawn off to make a garden, because that's what my wife really liked about the house, is it had this, this big lawn area she could use as a blank slate to, to, to um, terraform it and make a garden. Um, we pulled that off. There wasn't a single macroscopic life form in it. Mm. It was basically dead dirt. But Anne started working on it and adding organic matter to it, um, as mostly originally as just a, a mulch to keep the moisture in the soil. And over time, we started to notice the soil improve and get darker, and it was getting, you know, the organic matter content was going up because of the way she was gardening. And I started to recognize parallels between what these farmers were doing at uh, scale and what Ann was doing in our yard. Brilliant. And that, that led me into, you know, talking to people who were in the conservation agriculture world who, they're, they're the people who came up with those three principles. I didn't come up with those. They, they've You're been right. thought about and talked about. And But I became aware of them through this sort of circuitous path, and that led me to think, well, could we really scale this up? And the way to do it is to go interview and talk to farmers who have, have done it and yeah. find out what they did, how it changed the soil, dig a hole in their fields, and they go to their neighbor's fields and dig one to see what their field used to be like. And mm-hmm. it was totally eye-opening, totally eye-opening. Wow. Wow, cool. So... We could argue that we have a severe soil problem in this country, one that could extremely impact the future of us being able to even grow food. Uh, and what I want to explore just for a minute is the importance of restoring this. What, what do you see as our future around restoring our, you know, our soil uh, life? Well, you know, um, as I was writing Growing a Revolution, I was, you know, wrestling with the storyline and who to interview and how to do stuff. But the more I got into it and the more people I interviewed, the more optimistic I became that we can actually solve the problem. And the key to me was when I started to realize that almost all the farmers I was visiting had started off on what led them to a regenerative path through an economic hardship. They had, you know, the various different origin stories for them in terms of how that worked, but they, they sort of all ended up starting to go towards the no-till and then bringing cover crops in and then diversifying the rotations mm-hmm. through a a series of steps that usually started with 
they were economically challenged for a number of years and had to change the way they did things because they couldn't afford fertilizer this year, say, or, or oh, right. herbicides. So they, mm-hmm. they were sort of compelled to change, and they started seeing their soil improve. And as their soil improved, which they loved, they noticed that they could use less fertilizer. They could use less herbicide. They, when they went no-till, they used less diesel because they weren't driving their tractor so much across their field. Mm, right, exactly. And by not buying as much of those things, they were spending less, and yet their yields were remaining competitive with where they had been before, in some cases increasing. So they were making as much money but spending less, so they were more profitable. <laughs> and this was something that really you know, sort of worked for them. And I think that therein there really lies this opportunity for if these regenerative farming methods can rebuild not only the soil, but rebuild the profitability of, of, of farms small and large, Right. That's a recipe for wider adoption. And and why is that so attractive, I think, now? And sort of why is it at this point in history that that's happening? I think it's because if you look at how farming really has changed since the Second World War, farmers have become very specialized, for the most part. This is the average American farmer. has They've become very specialized at growing a few things. And right. they've become so good at doing that that the price of those commod- those inputs or those 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 crops which are then the right. input to the commodity market has is is depressed. Mm-hmm. But what's happened to the cost of the diesel and the fertilizer and the the pesticides and the designer seeds? All those things have gone through the roof cost-wise right. and it's the farmers yes. that are squeezed in the middle. Mm-hmm. The people, you know, buying the commodity crops from them and the people selling them all the inputs are doing just fine. So I think that with the opportunity is there to um, improve the bottom line at the farm scale by using less of the inputs, mm-hmm. there's sort of a built-in attraction to people um, looking at it and thinking, hey, maybe I should try this and see if it worked as well as my crazy neighbor who did it and then made more <laughs> money than I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it sounds to me like, number one, you're really optimistic, and number two, it's a pretty simple fix. We just have to go do it. Yeah, but you know, and the, and, you know, I don't want to downplay the, you know, the the effort involved in changing one's practices. That's always a barrier to anyone changing anything, including me and my daily routine. Right? I mean, we're clearly part of yes. being, part about being human. <laughs> yes, but, absolutely. But one of the hardest things for us to do, I think, at times, can be changing the way we think about things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the simplest thing in the sense of, oh, you just think about it. It doesn't cost you anything. It's just how you think. But it's, we're, we're, we're not very good at doing that on the fly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what we're really talking about doing is changing the underlying philosophy of farming to think about prioritizing building soil health. And that's a very different way that we've tended to think about it from, you know, from con- the conventional agriculture perspective of the last century. In terms of um, principles, uh, they're really mm-hmm. easy to, to conceive and think about. What's harder and what I think will take more ingenuity for farmers, which uh, I'm perfectly confident that, that most of them have, is thinking about how to tailor that to their land. Yeah. And, and that could take labor. It could take experimentation to figure out what works best. Um, yeah. There's no sort of simple recipe. There's a simple philosophy, you know, build soil health. But there's not so much a simple prescription for how you do it in terms of a cookbook recipe. Right. Well, because it's, it's specific to each property. 
Yeah, or each yeah. region. And so if you think of like what cover crops should I grow and what what rotation should I use, um, you know, you're going to get a different answer in the Dakotas than in Ohio than in Ghana. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know what I love about this conversation is that you it gives us hope that we could actually fix this. Uh, you know, I think this problem is very fixable. Mm-hmm. You know, whether we will do it, you know, I choose to believe we will because I want to be an optimist. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but I also see those those trends lining up where if we can mm-hmm. make farms more profitable and lower their environmental footprint, that's a really powerful combination for yeah. um, uniting people across all sort of political stripes and perspectives that, hey, this is a good idea. We should really be promoting this. Now, obviously, there will be you know, segments of society that may not think it's a terribly good idea, and those primarily, mm-hmm. from what I could tell, might be those who have a strong vested interest in selling the inputs that farmers rely on today. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, but that's – if you look at the evolution of economies and, and the aftermath of previous agricultural revolutions, mm-hmm. things change. There's always winners and losers in that game. Right. But the there's no question in my mind that – it would be in society's best interest to really promote these farmers who are trying to make the switch to a more regenerative style of agriculture. Um, That's, uh, for me, it seems like, you know, it's an overused phrase, but it's kind of a no-brainer that we ought to be encouraging this. Yeah. Well, amen to that. (laughs) That is for sure. That is for sure. So I'm going to shift on you now, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Oh boy. Well, you know, the, um, the example I'll probably point out to that is that at the end of my second year in college, I dropped out. I was, Uh I was done with a, with a productive experience in college at that point. And I took a year off. And so one could view that as failure. I didn't make it through in four years, which was what everybody Mm -hmm. thought I would do and what I thought I would do. But I think it was one of the best professional decisions I ever made in hindsight. It worked out well so that by the time I got back to college, I was motivated. I knew what I wanted to do, why I was there. Um, My grades got back up to the level that I had hoped they'd been at before I dropped out. Um, And, you know, what, uh, 30 years on, um, I'm a professor at a major university and and got a MacArthur a few years ago. So it kind of worked out in the end. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, we talked about this earlier in our pre-conversation. I kind of mirror that, too. I flunked out of Arizona State University the first time I was there because I really didn't want to be there. But then the next time I got there in 1999, I wanted to be there. You know, I was, yeah, and I think, I think that's a really good lesson in terms for anyone in college at any level is that yeah. you simply get more out of it if you know why you're there Yeah, you know, what, and yeah. what you want out of it. Yeah, exactly. When, when I went back, I knew what I wanted um, to finish. Then I took another couple of years off and then went back to grad school once I figured out what I wanted from grad school. Yeah. I, I lucked out. I uh, By the time I got back to school in 1999, I was 39 at that time, and I uh, I knew what I wanted to do. There um, you go. <laughs> yeah, so that I kind of lucked out, and I didn't have to I didn't have to wait. I went directly from my bachelor's into my master's, so... <laughs> So my next question is, what do you consider your biggest success? And I kind of want to guide that question a little bit, because I want to know more about this MacArthur Fellow Award that you got. Oh, well, you know, that's that was one of the nicest surprises. No, that was the nicest surprise, true surprise, I think, that's happened to me. It's that um, Uh 
It's they're a they're a wonderful foundation that you know every year gives out what's popularly called the Genius Awards. That um, I think it's September that they're announced. Um, mm-hmm. And I got a, I was you don't know when you get one you don't you had no idea that you were nominated you had no idea the process wow. you just get this phone call that says hi we're the MacArthur Foundation and um, you know you may have heard of us and you've been selected as a fellow this year and you, you're at my response was like, yeah, really? Who put you up to this? Is this a joke? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? I'll bet they get that a lot. Yeah. Well, that's what the guy on the other end of the line said. He said, yeah, we get that a lot. It was the exact words. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can call the foundation back, ask for the president of it. They'll connect you back to me if you really need to be confirmed about this. And I was like, you're serious, right. aren't you? <laughs> wow. And that was a really nice thing. They basically give you a, a very nice uh, chunk of money that comes in over five years. And uh-huh. the goal is to promote... Um, creativity to do. There's no strings attached. It's, it's for you mm-hmm. to use to further what you want to do with your. If you're an artist in your artistic endeavors, if you're an intellectual in what you study, um, you know I viewed it as a writer. It helped keep me in the right, the popular uh, writing game because that came yeah. after my my second popular book, and I'm on my fifth now, I guess. So mm-hmm. um, that was that was a major. I mean, it's a real nice vote of confidence in one's work. Right. And yeah. It, it, it opened a lot of doors. It was very nice. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you. Absolutely. So what drives you? Well, you know, I think in one word, I'd have to say curiosity. Mm. Um, I like to know how stuff works. I like to learn stuff. Um, and so, I mean, one of the reasons I've, I've been writing books in fields that are a little bit outside of what my academic training is in Mm-hmm. is that it compels me to actually learn that field, you know, do some research in it, understand it well enough to write about it, but you know, not at the deep technical level, but at the broader level that, that you know, people outside that field could understand. But I want to get the yeah. science right, too, so people in the field will go, oh, yeah, you got that right. Yeah. But I think that what really drives me to do that is um, well, I like learning stuff, and that is rooted in curiosity. Yeah. Beautiful. So... If you could recommend one book, what would it be and why? Well, you mean other than one of mine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, there's a, there's a, can, I, can I get away with two? Sure. Okay, well, if I can get away with two, then the first one I'm going to recommend is Charles Darwin's book on worms. It's, it's called, you know, on... Uh, uh, on, on the origin of on the origin of the vegetable mold, I think it's called. He's basically looking oh. at how soil is formed, but mm. he did it. He looked at that through studying worms. It was the last book Darwin wrote in his life, 1881. Mm-hmm. And I originally started reading it because I needed a book to put me to sleep at night, and I thought that was <laughs> surely a 19th century science book would do that. It damn didn't, thing, did it. Damn thing was fascinating, well written, yeah. engaging, yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Um, and so anyone who's interested in soil and its fertility, Darwin was actually one of the early people thinking about that uh, the right mm-hmm. way. And it's a fascinating book. But the other one that I'll, I'll suggest is by Lady Eve Balfour, who was a, um, she was a Brit a farmer in the uh, mid-20th century who uh-huh. wrote a book called The Living Soil. And she made the argument, which was decades ahead of her time, that soil health, the state of fertility of the land, directly translates into the health of people. And mm. it goes through, her idea was that soil health leads to health, healthy soil, leads to healthy crops, leads to healthy livestock, leads to healthy people. 
And she connected all the dots up, did, did, uh, reported, she did her academic homework, made a beautiful argument. It's surprisingly readable. Uh, and it was decades ahead of her time because the understanding of how each of those pieces are linked really wasn't very well developed. Right. But in the subsequent decades, those pieces have started to fall into place. And actually, Ann and I are starting to work on a new book that looks at that very connection between soil health and human health trying to mm-hmm. update uh, Balfour's um, look at things. Because a lot of the modern science, uh, the microbial science in particular, that we wrote about in The Hidden Half of Nature, that kind of stuff is falling into line in ways that really support what Balfour saw. But right. she was seeing it through all these associations and empiricisms of, you know, when you feed people this, they're either healthier or not. Mm-hmm. The mechanics were not understood. Yeah. But that's just falling in place. So Balfour's The Living Soil would be my other suggestion. Perfect. Thank you. What one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Boy, you know, that's going to be the, and I've been challenged to sort of summarize our hidden half of nature book with a, with a single you know, takeaway message. And, that, and mm-hmm. that's the advice that I'll give people uh, is, is this takeaway. Mulch your soil inside and out. Because mm. the, the human gut is just like the soil around the plant roots. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I've, I've heard this before that the, the more we're out working in the dirt, the healthier we are because we're taking in those microbes. Uh, the surprising amount of, um, of our health is related to that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, whether we're consuming them in, in our food, whether we're feeding the right mic- microbes the right way, and exposure to the soil has is, 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 is def- is been definitely related to health. And surprisingly, yeah. perhaps, even to mental health in terms of our own serotonin production is controlled a lot by our microbes, how happy we are. So yeah. that, there's, there's studies that suggested that gardeners should be on, happy, on average happier than other people. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, David. Well, no worries. It's been my pleasure, Greg. Absolutely. So I just want to do a shout out, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. Uh, that's his book. You can find it, um, I'm sure, on Amazon, and we'll have it on our show notes page as well. So other than that, how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, there's sort of two ways. There's We have a website, digtogrow.com. That's www.dig, the number two, and then grow.com. Mm-hmm. And you can reach us through digtogrow at Gmail is our email address or through our website, uh, and uh, if, for those of you in the Twitterverse, uh, Ann and I are active on Twitter, and our call is at dig, the number two, grow. Oh, very good. Perfect. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash big dirt. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, 
there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.